Thanks, Joanna. It's nice for you that you can actually get away without wearing glasses every now and again. Uh, you might like to keep your Bible there if you've got one. But we're continuing a series in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, some of you might recall uh, the Welsh revival uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, in just five months, something like 100,000 people were reported to have confessed Jesus as their Lord uh, and Saviour. 100,000 people in five months. Just imagine that. That's like the whole Bundaberg region coming to Christ. Uh, So many people were converted that it changed the whole shape of the culture. Judges had no cases to try. There were no robberies, no rapes, no murders, no embezzlements, nothing. Apparently, district councils held these emergency meetings to talk about what they were going to do with the police now that they basically had no work. One police sergeant was asked, well, what what do you do with your time? He said, well, before the revival, we had two main jobs to prevent crime and, and to control the crowds, like at the football games. He said, since the revival started, there's practically no crime, and so we just go with the crowds. What do you mean you go with the crowds? The interviewer asked. Uh, Well, you know, the crowds, they're packing out the churches. We have 17 police in our station, but we have three three quartets. If any church wants a quartet to sing, they just (laughs) ring the police station. It's an interesting change of role, isn't it? Uh, Productivity in the mines even slowed down because converted Welsh miners stopped using filthy language. Uh, The horses that would drag the coal trucks uh, in the mines, they were used to being yelled at and abused and sworn at. They couldn't understand their orders anymore. So many people were converted that it just changed the whole shape of the culture. Who you are shapes what you do, how you live. Queenslanders wear that maroon football jersey, don't they? I could never do that. A a, a tradesperson wears that that high-vis shirt. Who you are shapes what you do, how you live. Someone said we should not separate being a Christian and living Christianly. You cannot have one without the other. Leonard Ravenhill said the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make the man holy and put him back into the unholy world and keep him holy in it. Who you are, I'm in Christ. Who you are, I'm in Christ. Who you are, it shapes what you do, how you live. That's our subject this afternoon in in this passage, holiness, or or living uh, differently for Jesus. When the message came to these people in that place, Thessalonica, uh, in the first century, it turned their world upside down. So much so that we read back in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, a great memory verse, that they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he rose from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. It's a great description of what Christians are on about, turning away from idolatry, turning to God to serve him as we wait for Jesus' return. 
And so this afternoon, I want to ask, is your life distinct, different, because of who you are in Jesus? Do you find yourself having to give an explanation uh, to your friends and family, your neighbours and your workmates? Uh, I'm this way because can be a bit awkward. Well, that was the reality for the Thessalonians in the first century, that these new young believers. And as Paul, uh, in this letter, transitions to the, the second half of the letter, we have a little introduction. You, you see just the first two verses of chapter 4? We read, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You notice that the Thessalonians, they are living to to please God. They were living to please God. Who you are shapes what you do, how you live. But here, Paul, Silas and Timothy, in this this team-written letter, they say, keep at it, Thessalonians. Get on with it. Live to please God more and more. I wonder if we sometimes think about living for Jesus uh, a bit as though there's a point of arrival. like climbing a ladder, everyone's on these holiness ladders, so, so to speak. And at some point we think, oh, that'll do. Uh, maybe we look across at that guy who looks a little bit more holy than us. And then there's this girl who's further along. And we think, oh, I better climb a bit higher. I better live a bit more for Jesus. But we then get to a point and think, well, that's about Right. Some of those really keen people are further along than me, but, you know, they're a bit weird anyway, aren't they? And, but I'm further along than some others. You know, I'm, this is about right. That'll do. Good enough. And maybe we do that, perhaps even subconsciously. But you see, the Christian life is not like this, is it? Our passage this afternoon, notice it's sandwiched by an urging for more and more, uh, the beginning and the end. This is not about earning God's approval, by the way. We already have that in the all-sufficient work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust in him, you're holy in God's sight. God clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. Sin's forgiven and he gives us his righteousness too. No, this is just about walking in who we are, putting on who we are, living out who we are. Jen's a Queenslander now. Uh, She's starting to tentatively wear the colours. Well, just get on with it then if you're a Queenslander. You know you put the colours on. But see the sandwich, those two outer verses. Verse 1, now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. And verse 10, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Who you are shapes what you do, how you live. And living to please God is the business of the follower of Jesus. And here Paul says, get stuck in. 
you doing that? Get stuck in more and more. And that's just the general introduction. We might think of all kinds of different ways that we can be living to please God. But notice in this passage, Paul, he just narrows in on two. The first is in verses 3 to 8 and the second verses 9 to 12. The first, verse 3 to 8, it has to do with holiness in sexual conduct. We read in verse 3 of chapter 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality. Sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this, sometimes we can struggle with God's will, can't we? What is God's will for my life? And when we struggle with this, usually it's somehow related to what job should I get or, or where should I live or who should I marry? But notice here, it's God's will that we should be, God's people should be, sanctified, Uh, that is, it's God's will that we should be holy, living more and more like Jesus. Now, I reckon that's helpful as we struggle, knowing we're not as much like Jesus as we'd like to be. It's good to know, isn't it, that this is actually what God wants for us, that the almighty God who made us in his image for relationship with him He wants us to be more like him. We can expect that he's going to help us with that. And that involves all kinds of things. But first, Paul says, avoid sexual immorality. And you may know the Greek word behind sexual immorality is porneia. Uh, That's where we get the word for pornography. And most commentators say uh, it's reference here to all kinds of sexual behaviour outside of biblical marriage. That is all sexual behaviour outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Avoid all kinds of sexual immorality. That's a pretty challenging thing to say in our culture today, isn't it? But it's not as though the Thessalonian context was any easier. In fact, it may have actually been much harder. You imagine these new believers in Thessalonica converted from paganism, converted from a religion where going to the temple and having sex with the temple prostitute was probably mainstream. And them then having to explain why they're not doing it anymore. And living in a culture where it was generally very tolerant of sexual activity outside of marriage, everyone else is doing it. To the point where Cicero, one of Rome's famous politicians and orators said, if anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, he is very strict indeed. That's the the general climate of Thessalonica. Every man has a mistress and a a prostitute as well as a wife. And Paul says in that context, who you are in Christ is so significant, it even impacts what you do with sex. In fact, verse 4 and 5, you see this? 
we read, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. You see, the person who has relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, is to control their body. Self-control is to be a characteristic of the Christian. With God's help, saying no to those urges when they run contrary to God's will. Now, our culture says, I feel this way, so it must be right. But God says in his word, sex is for marriage and not outside of it. And see, too, that just as petrol outside the fuel tank can cause such great damage, so we read in verse 6 that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Sex in the wrong place can cause so much trouble. Sometimes we can think, well, what I'm doing here, it's private. I'm not hurting anyone on the screen on my own late at night. But that's never how it works. The addiction to, to pornography can ruin marriages as well as contributing to an industry that abuses women. The flirtatious relationship at work, we're not hurting anybody, you reason, but then leading to the breakdown of a marriage and family due to adultery and so many other things, if you play it out, Paul says, think about how this impacts others. And you'll find that it always does in some way or another. In verses 6 to 8, Paul gives three reasons. You notice to avoid sexual immorality. He warns of the future judgment of Jesus in verse 6. You imagine this culture in, in Thessalonians, the power imbalance in so many sexual relationships in that first century, mostly men abusing young women. God will bring justice, says Paul. He speaks of the past call of God in verse 7, the purpose of God's call on a person's life that we might live for him, that we might be holy, set apart to him. And he points to the present gifts of God the Holy Spirit, verse 8. Paul says to say, no, actually, I'm just going to ignore you on this one, uh, Paul, uh, it's just too hard to, to go against the grain on this one. Paul says this is to be rejecting God himself. It's really challenging, isn't it? When the reality is we're all sexual sinners, uh, whether that be in thought, uh, in what we see or what we do. Uh, no Christian has the moral high ground on this. There was a helpful article in the Sydney Morning Herald on Friday, I think it was, where Jordan Baker interviewed Kanishka Raphael, the, um, the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. Um, and the conversation was around marriage and various other things. It's worth a read if you Google it. Kanishka tells his story in this sort of interview 
uh, of being a Buddhist and trying to control his life, trying to gain control over life, but then meeting a a fellow medical student um, who said, I've handed control of my life over to Jesus. Uh, And that led him to coming to faith. Anyway, Jordan Baker in this interview, she says, uh, Kanishka is very funny, charming and diplomatic. He has been described, even by some who disagree with him, as a nice chap. But he is also ever so politely unapologetic. Sydney Anglicans won't be changing their interpretation of the Bible to suit the times, he said. There's no doubt we are the countercultural end rather than culturally accommodating, he says. This isn't a matter of pig-headedness. We're trying to follow Jesus. Sometimes living to please God can be culturally challenging, and it certainly was for those Thessalonians back in the first century. But Paul says to them and us, you're in Christ. Live to please God more and more. Now, in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, 9 to 12, Paul turns to the topic of love for one another. You, you notice that? And while Paul acknowledges that they're already doing it in, in verse 9, loving one another, in fact, their love for other believers, we note in verse 10, it stretches across the whole region of Macedonia. That said, he urges them to do it more and more. But look at verse 11. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. That verse might seem a bit strange, but it's, it's likely that some within the Christian community, although they could have been working, they weren't. And instead, they were relying on the generosity of the more wealthy believers to be looked after. Normally in the Bible, there's that instruction for the wealthy to look after the poor, isn't there? Which, of course, is very important. But here it seems to it's a warning to those who are sponging off others. The freeloaders. Paul is saying, stop bludging and get a job that you might not be a burden to others. Now, this is reference to those who can get a job, not those who are trying or unable for some reason. But the emphasis is for growing in love for one another. And Paul prayed about that at the end of chapter 3. We looked at it last week. I heard someone say, you cannot pretend that you're pleasing God if you're not growing in your love for your local church. I reckon that's a challenging comment to reflect on. But also you see verse 12, he says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Uh, The freeloader or... The busybody, if you're not working, you've got to be doing something and it can lead to being a busybody. These people don't exactly gain the respect of those who don't yet know Jesus. 
not only is it unloving to be an unnecessary burden, but it's also a rubbish witness to Jesus. Uh, What did Jesus say? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Who you are determines how you live. And we don't ever arrive. There's not some holiness ladder and you get to a certain point and think, that'll do. No, it's more and more and more and more until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As God's people, we live to please him. How are you going with this? The sexual ethics of the Christian life? None of us are without sin. Our ongoing love for one another? I'm going to pray now, and in a moment we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. Uh, But I reckon this is a great opportunity just to pause and think about uh, our own sin and how Jesus at the cross, he dies in our place. In him we have the forgiveness of sins. In him we're given his righteousness. And we say, I'm in Christ. I am not my own, I belong to him. And so with his help, we get on with living for him. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for what happens when someone comes to Christ. Uh, Lord, we recognise that Jesus turns our worlds upside down. Lord, we thank you for the Welsh revival and for the way that the shape of a culture was just completely changed. And Lord, we pray that you would shape and change us, that you would transform us by the gospel of your son. Uh, Lord, we want to recognise that uh, the biblical call uh, for purity in sex is really hard in our culture. And that we're all guilty in some way. Lord, forgive us, we pray. And help us not flow with the tide of our culture. But help us be serious about following our Lord Jesus. And please, Lord, help us when it's really hard. Lord, we pray too that our love for one another would increase, would abound would keep on growing. And Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we thank you that even as we remember our failings, we're forgiven in Jesus, holy in your sight. And we thank and praise you for this. Amen.